Thank you very much, Karen. And thank you to the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University and to Professor Paul Murray for the invitation to give this Bishop Dunn Memorial Lecture. Bearing scars and forging hope, the Church's flawed expertise in humanity. Um, this is something I've been thinking about uh, for a little while, and when Paul asked me to give this, I just said I might do a little bit of reflection on what I'd heard a number of theologians refer to over the last couple of years as our expertise or the church as an expert in humanity. So it's a kind of reflection that's ongoing. I don't have a definitive position in it, although I hope I can offer something um, that is both uh, positive and critical. The contemporary tensions in the church and in Catholic theological ethics exposed in the current debate about a footnote albeit a very important and pastorally sensitive one in Amoris Laetitiae, are tensions about a number of things. I'm not going to discuss that particular issue tonight, but I think what's happening around that is very interesting. There are tensions about doctrine itself, tensions about who decides doctrinal and disciplinary changes and how, but also, I think, tensions about the Church's expertise in humanity, and our understanding of that expertise. So this paper will firstly look briefly at where the church self-identifies as an expert in humanity. Then I'll reflect just briefly on three aspects of a wealth of expertise that we have. Uh, firstly, the concept of the human person as a Margot Day. Secondly, the 20th century reassessment of our understanding of our humanity at Vatican II especially in Gaudium et Spes, and thirdly, the enduring relevance of our natural law tradition in relation to the expertise in humanity that it brings. And then I will raise what I see as a fourth kind of expertise that the Church has at this moment in its history. So just to say that when I refer to the Church normally in my theology, I refer to the Church broadly. And just in relation to this particular paper, for shorthand, I'm talking particularly about the difficulties and challenges of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, defining itself as an expert. So the first, I began to hear a number of, shall I say, some younger moral theologians speaking with great authority about the Church as an expert in humanity. So I went back to look and see where, in fact, does the Church self-identify as such? The ecclesial use of the term expert in humanity is usually traced to Paul VI and is addressed to the United Nations on its 20th anniversary in 1965. The Pope said that he brought to the UN the sport of the Church as an expert in humanity. However, Paul VI's use of the term is instructive, for he goes on to say, in, you, in saying this, in using this phrase, expert in humanity, we are aware that we are speaking for the dead as well as the living, for the dead who have fallen in the terrible wars of the past, for the living who have survived the wars, for other living people too, the younger generation of today who are moving forward trustfully with every right to expect a better humankind. We also want to speak for the poor, the disinherited, the unfortunate, those who long for justice, a dignified life, liberty, prosperity and progress. So Paul VI evokes the expertise of suffering and hope, and out of that expertise brings a critique to the UN 
that is forward-looking, calling for disarmament, justice and unity. The other famous use by Paul VI of the term expert in humanity, or it's translated as such, is found in Populorum Progressio, written, as you all know, to all people of goodwill, thus appealing to a common vocabulary of expertise about humanity. And the most often cited paragraph around that is paragraph 13. The Church, which has long experience in human affairs and has no desire to be involved in the political activities of any nation, seeks but one goal, to carry forward the work of Christ under the lead of the befriending spirit. Now, it's very interesting to look at the translation of this particular document, and I won't bore you by going on for ages about translations of um, documents and encyclicals, but in the Latin, em rerum humanarum peritissima, it's sometimes translated into English as an expert in humanity, but actually it can just as easily be translated as experienced in humanity, and that would be just as legitimate. Um, in Spanish, it, it says, with the experience que tiene de la humanidad, the experience we have of humanity. In French, they go for the expert in humanity. So it's just interesting to look at how that translation of that phrase has shaped the, dis the discourse that the church sometimes uses about its own expertise. Paul VI goes on in that paragraph to say, she offers man her distinctive contribution, a global perspective on the human person and human realities. Popular and Progressio, as you know, critiques the role of experts working in the developing world. Technical expertise is necessary, but he says three things. Firstly, it must be accompanied by concrete signs of love. Secondly, experts should learn to work in collaboration with everyone. And thirdly, they must realise that their expert knowledge does not give them superiority in every sphere of life. While Paul VI directed this critique of expertise towards development experts, and indeed a critique that remains re relevant today, this critique could be turned towards the Church's own contribution as expert in human affairs. Nonetheless, the person most associated with defining the Church as an expert in humanity, Paul VI, offers a nuanced portrait of that expertise. Very simply, a unique insight into the human person shaped by Christ, especially people who suffer, the poor, disinherited, those who long for justice. A global perspective on humanity. The verb sharing the noblest of human aspirations and suffering when these are thwarted and being a voice for the voiceless. In his opening address at the 1979 Puebla Conference, John Paul II referred to the Church as an expert in humanity, as defender of human rights on the basis of the Gospel and the example of Christ. We need heralds of the Gospel who are experts in humanity, who know the depths of the human heart. A decade later, John Paul says that the Church fulfills her task as an expert in humanity by, and I quote, enlightening consciences with her teaching and witness. What we see, I think, in that period, that decade, under Pope John Paul's um, pontificate, is a move from the kind of broad expertise that Paul VI referred to, very much related to common humanity and suffering, 
with to the reference to the expertise of the church as linked to authoritative teaching. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with that link, but I think it's a very significant shift and in a way moves away from the original impetus and nuance of Paul VI. Um, the church's pastors, John Paul writes in Veritatis Splendor, in communion with the successor of Peter, are close to the faithful in this effort. They guide and accompany them by their authoritative teaching. And he goes on to talk about the extraordinary witness of this attitude on the part of the church, which, as an expert in humanity, places herself at the service of every individual and of the whole world. So there is a shift, a kind of noticeable shift, and I think it has that kind of shift, shift had um, an impact on moral theology in the Catholic tradition. Helen Alvary, in an article on Catholic teaching and the law concerning new reproductive technologies, says, the church has repeatedly defended its expertise in defining the nature of the human person. Since Paul VI, we see an expansion and thickening of the usage of the term expert in humanity. With greater links with the idea of expertise and authoritative teaching, and a preponderance of usage in dealing with issues of sexuality and reproduction, and its use in treating the question of the complementarity of men and women. Probably one of the most famous usage in the 2000s of the term expert in humanity is in the 2004 Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith uh, letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church on the collaboration of men and women in the church and in the world. I'm sure you're familiar with that document. It begins by saying the church expert in humanity has a perennial interest in whatever concerns men and women. However, the difficulty with this letter is that it is stating that the church is not just expert in humanity, but in the specific humanity of women, and perhaps knows women better than they know themselves. There is a strain in this use of expert in humanity that moves beyond the Christological and solidaristic use of the term by Paul VI. And the letter on the collaboration between men and women has ignored the commitment to dialogue that is, for example, marked by um, ecumenical dialogue. So, for example, in Autunum Sint, on commitment to humanism, John Paul recognises that dialogue has become an outright necessity, one of the church's priorities. Primarily, he says, dialogue between competent experts from different churches. The CDF document completely overlooks the existence of competent experts among feminist and women theologians. Their expertise is subsumed into an overarching category of radical feminism. It is precisely this lack of intellectual integrity that makes this letter and some other statements on the expertise of the church problematic. The question I was left with reading that document was, whose expertise? John Allen, the journalist, noted recently that this claim to be expert in humanity is a bold claim. But he says, if we define expert in humanity simply as a descriptive term for a church with a wide range of moral and political concerns, then it fits like, fits like a glove. So that's the question I then reflected on, does it fit like a glove? 
The model of the church as an expert in humanity has rich justification. We believe that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have the exegete of the human person who interprets our humanity in the ultimate way. In the community of the church, broadly conceived, the combined wisdom of sacred scripture and lived tradition provide a deep reservoir of guidance in our struggle to understand what it means to be human, to recognize our capacity to disfigure that humanity and the consequences of that disfigurement. Our expertise as part of the community of humanity is expressed in the natural law of tradition, which I'll refer to later, which holds fast to the belief that human persons across the boundaries of faith and culture can reason to the good and can articulate, however falteringly, the ethical imperatives born of that common humanity. So I want just to briefly remind you of something, of course, you know very well, three sources of the wealth of that expertise. Firstly, we have a kind of biblical expertise, that simple Genesis text that tells us that the human person is made as Imago Dei, the image of God. This simple text in Genesis is a shared text between Jews and Christians. Looking at it in the text itself, it's very enigmatic. But there is an expansive interpretive tradition in rabbinic, patristic, medieval and modern texts. Paul writes on Christ as the image of God. And while Paul refers to our transformation into the fullness of that image after death, he also envisages a gradual growth in likeness to Christ through the modelling of our earthly lives after his example. An, ide- an influential idea for subsequent patristic tradition and the idea of deification or theosis. St. Irenaeus is well known for his distinction between image and likeness. In his work, we begin to see the origins of the sense of the image of God as something static, ontological, written into our being, and likeness as a dynamic force. Likeness or similitude is something we have to work at with the help of the Spirit. This idea of the ontological, written into our being, dimension of the human person as a Imago Dei, expresses itself in, beautifully, I think, in the strong conviction expressed by Augustine in De Trinitate. He says, whether this image be so worn out as to be almost none at all, or whether it be obscure and defaced, or bright and beautiful, certainly it always is. The ethical dimension of the Imago Dei is expressed in that dynamic idea of growing in likeness. The whole of our theological anthropology is a grappling with the meaning of saying that the human person is a Mago Dei. Within the tradition, there are positive ways in which we try to identify that image of God within humanity, and you're familiar, for some it's rationality, others emphasize relationality. But there is also a strand which reminds us that the human person is a mystery, an idea found in Gregory of Nyssa, who said that just as God transcends our comprehension, so too the nature of the image, he says, evades our knowledge. Augustine reminds us that our human nature is, he says, in the Confessions, more investigated than comprehended. These more apophatic, and you're familiar with that, the cloud of unknowing tradition, these more apophatic anthropologies act as a counter-discourse to the deterministic and prescriptive anthropologies that find expression in some contemporary expert statements about the human person, reminding us that our understanding of the concept of the human person 
as a Mago Day should retain something of the mystery and hesitancy that should characterise our statements about God. So the second source that I want to turn to briefly is the 20th century reassessment of the Catholic understanding of humanity at Vatican II, especially as found in Gaudium et Spes. In the summer of 2010, over 600 theologians gathered in Trento, Italy, for a conference of Catholic theological ethics in the World Church. The gathering of those teaching and researching the area of theological ethics included men and women, lay and cleric, from a wide variety of cultures and contexts from 75 countries. Eucharist was celebrated in the Duomo where the opening Mass and the first public sessions of the Council of Trent took place. As I sat there, I was moved to be in the place where the Council of Trent had met, and I was amused as I reflected that the fathers who attended the Tridentine Council would never have envisaged this gathering of men and women engaged in the very moral theology which that council had definitively moved from the university to the seminary, becoming the preserve of the cleric. Less dramatically, one could suggest that the conciliar fathers of the 1960s would be similarly surprised to see such a diversity of moral theologians. Yet that gathering in Trento was evidence of the success of the renewal of Christian humanism and moral theology after Vatican II, and the flourishing of a discipline, theological ethics, that was described by Roger Robert in 1954 as the most decrepit of the ecclesiastical sciences. How did that cathedral get filled with such diversity of humanity? And how effective is that diversity in determining the 21st century church's expertise on humanity? The 20th century reassessment of our understanding of humanity at Vatican II, especially in Gaudium et Spes, is and remains one of the neuralgic points in our understanding and interpretation of that council. Joseph Komanchak argues that the Second Vatican Council can be read as the event in which the Catholic Church significantly reassessed modern society and human culture and the attitude and strategies it had adopted towards them in the previous century and a half. One could argue that what was being reassessed at Vatican II was the particular expertise the Church saw itself as having in relation to humanity. Karl Rahner writes of the importance of seeing the Council as a victory of Christianity and not of liberalism, an insight that is important for our interpretation of the influences of the Council on our understanding of what it is to be human and what constitutes a truly human response to some of our ethical challenges. When Rahner referred to a victory of Christianity, he meant a pneumatological victory particularly in overcoming the Augustinian pessimism about human capabilities. Ratzinger, writing a decade after the Council in an essay some of you probably know, wrote a review of its failures, tasks and hopes. He looks at it in the context of earlier councils, which, reviewed from a, when viewed from a macroscopic perspective, are marked by success and accomplishments. But he notes that in, in opposition to this, there is the microscopic one, the view close by, which reveals that nearly all councils seem to have to destroy equilibrium and have created a crisis. Nicaea was followed by the crushing dispute about Arianism. The wound of Chalcedon is not closed even today, he said. 
Vatican I, Ratzinger argued, created wounds in departments of theology in Germany that did not heal for decades. It seems to suppose, he goes on, that a refrained, that a, a council like Vatican II that refrained from dogmatization and excluded no one would also offend no one. So I think we see two readings there. There's the Ranarian, very muted, because he certainly wasn't a kind of an enthusiast, of a pneumatological victory. And then you have the Ratzinger re- reading, which is a, as a kind of wound, it left a wound. And I think in some ways th- that tension is also behind some of the current um, dispute, disputes, plural, in the church today. Um, I'll just t- touch briefly on Gaudium et Spes. Um, the original title, as you know, was to be Gaudium et Luctus Spes et Anger. Joys and Grief, Hope and Anguish, which in hindsight would have been a more suitable title, less open to charges of naive optimism. The opening words, however, I think remain, certainly for someone of my generation, a really uh, influential, um, almost vocational and uh, sense of, of what the church was about, the joys and hope, the grief and anguish of the peoples of our time, especially those who are poor and afflicted, are the joys and hopes, the grief and anguish of the followers of Christ as well. Nothing genuinely human fails to find an echo in their hearts. This, I think, is something that has touched the ethical imagination of Christians as it calls for solidarity with the joyful and the shaken, preference for the poor and afflicted, and the challenge to discern the genuinely human and take that to heart. Jack Mahoney said that if you could had to single out any conciliar sentence as summing up the general temper of the Council's teaching, it would be difficult to overlook Gaudium et Spes 33, where it says, the Church guards the heritage of God's word and draws from it moral and religious principles without always having at hand the solution to particular problems. As such, she desires to add the light of revealed truth to mankind's store of experience, so that the path which humanity has taken in recent times will not be a dark one. So there the expertise is very much the expertise of revelation that Gaudium Spes is referring to. It still offers us, I think, uh, valuable indications for the way to resolve major contemporary human questions. It addresses itself, as you, as you well know, beyond the church to all people of goodwill, not just to be inclusive or politically correct, but as a real statement of belief in the wider action of the Holy Spirit in the world. The church must take the human condition seriously because God is present in all that is human. The method of engaging with the urgent problems of our day is one of considering these in the light of gospel and human experience. Both are sources of insight into moral truth and action. The challenge of understanding how, in fact, human experience can illumine is large. Whose experience? What weight do you give to experience? How is its significance discerned? There is an imperative to engage with human experience and grapple grapple with messiness and the challenge of doing so. The document is positive about human freedom. The Church admits that it does not have all the answers, a modesty unusual before that in official Church documents. It reflects a more humble approach of limiting the authority of the Church's expertise in politics, economics and social theory. 
The document employs a historically conscious and inductive methodology in an attempt to ground natural law specifically in the human person and not in an abstract conception of human nature, seeking to hold in tension the commonality of natural law and the specifics of human history. There's a move towards a personalist consideration of the human person, the whole person, with the particularity of the person as woman and man, black, indigenous or poor, aspects necessary for adequately considering the human person. The significance of Gaudium Express was in what Philippe Bourdain calls the deplacement of the way Catholic theology approached moral issues, that is, the role of human experience, thus broadening our expertise in matters human. The new humanism of Gaudium Express is Christological humanism, for Christ is the focal point and goal of the human person, as well as all of human history. Christ taught us by example, it says, we too must shoulder that cross which the world and the flesh inflict upon those who search after peace and justice. The pointer to a theology of cross is not developed, perhaps due to the optimism in the document about the possibilities of reform and goodwill to bring about justice and peace. Um, Perhaps a naive optimism when we look back on the last few decades. The theme of shouldering the cross in the search for justice and peace later finds more explicit development in liberation theology. One of the most significant contributions of Gaudium et Spes was to ground the protection and promotion of human rights theologically and 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 thus to place Catholic involvement in the struggle for human rights at the heart of the mission and ministry of the Church. And lastly, and again, it's a material you're very familiar with, this whole idea of reading the signs of the times became almost a cliche in some ways. And John Sabrino, I think, in a very good essay in, um, in, written in Spanish, he talks about the tension between a historical pastoral reading of the signs of the times. In other words, we look as church at what's happening in human history and see how, in fact, we are called to respond to that to identify our mission, to rescue, not to seat in judgment, etc. But on the other hand, the signs of the times have a historical theological meaning. The signs are happenings, needs and desires, Gaudium et Spes says, authentic signs of God's presence and purpose. This statement mentions historical phenomena, but adds, and this is of crucial importance, Sabrina says, that God's presence or purpose has to be discerned in them, History is seen not just in its changing and dense novelty, but it's in its sacramental dimension, in its ability to manifest God in the present. And there is a tension, I think, in both those interpretations of the signs of the times. It's relatively easy to look and see where human need calls us to response. It's it's theologically and, I think, spiritually more difficult to identify the historical theological meaning um, to distinguish the voice of God from other voices that may be telling us uh, how to read our times. Reading the signs of the times, however, is a risky enterprise. One risks being wrong, not so much in terms of ethical principles, but in concrete responses. It's a delicate balance trying to take human history seriously without reducing to historical or cultural relativism. Robert McAfee Brown offered a timely and wise um, Protestant critique 
of that document, saying that Gaudium et Spes and, to a large extent, the Second Vatican Council documents minimise the degree to which the Gospel is also a scandal to humanity and a stumbling block by which men and women can be offended as well as uplifted. However, we read Gaudium et Spes today with a greater awareness that the Church itself has become a scandal and stumbling block, but not in the Pauline conception of Gospel scandal. How can a church which has become in some ways a scandal preach in you a gospel that both offends and uplifts? The church at the Second Vatican Council saw itself called to be a sign and safeguard of the transcendence of the human person. Yet the documents are largely blind to the failures of the church in relation to that call. Today we read the world, but the world also reads us. Joe Selling argues that Gaudium et Spes played a significant role in expanding the, and developing Catholic moral theology into a world church, globalised, aware of the complexities of religious otherness, influenced by post-colonial thought and theologies of enculturation, more specific local expertise, more specific local theological anthropologies emerged. What would an Asian moral theology look like? What might be a particular Caribbean understanding of virtue? The danger of local theology collapsing into localism is as real as the danger of imperial universalism. Thus, at the conference at Trento, people presented papers on topics such as modern-day slavery, torture, HIV, AIDS, African models of reconciliation, Christian personalist and Buddhist transpersonalist ethics, Fathers at Trent, we're not, definitely not discussing that. On Aquinas and Confucius, but also on intrinsic evil, Alphonsus Liguri and Catholic casuistry. Theological ethics, born in Vatican II, is a kind of polyphony, a much more global perspective. However, as much as diversity of voices and methods is needed, so too we must be vigilant in the face of suspicion of and disdain for universals. John Baptist Matthew says that theologians are obligated to universality, for the future of the world depends on such universalism. So I just want to turn very briefly to the third kind of expertise which I think we have in humanity. And it's probably quite particular, but not exclusive, to um, Catholic engagement with questions of human ethical issues. And that is our um, enduring, enduring relevance of the natural law tradition. What might be termed, in its best face, it doesn't always have a very good face, a dialogical expertise of humanity. The sense of it, the imperative for some kind of universality, is mentioned by Terry Eagleton in his 2007 book, The Meaning of Life. He says, in a world where we live in overwhelming danger, which sounds very pertinent in these days, our failure to find common meanings is as alarming as it is invigorating. Despite the concern expressed, particularly by Benedict XVI, about a dictatorship of relativism, it's certainly my experience that there has been a growing interest in natural law and its possibilities for contemporary ethics and for common discourse about the meaning of our humanity. Its attraction lies in the recognition that a morally good life is open to every human person, its positive assessment of humanity and of our capacity for moral discernment. It opens possibilities for a common, modest common morality and for the critique of culturally and socially constructed norms. 
It's very interesting to see the renewed interest in the contribution of Thomas Aquinas to natural law, particularly his rich understanding of practical reason. I teach human rights on our MA in ethics in DCU, and it's a purely secular MA, but I never cease to be astounded by the number of people who write essays on people like Francisco de Vittoria, and who find in um, engagements with scholars like that material that helps them grapple with issues like humanitarian intervention and other questions of international law. However, lest I be accused of offering a very one-sided portrait of natural law, we also have to recognise that it's often identified by its weaknesses, a static understanding of human nature and society, the difficulty of reconciling natural law with diversity of cultures, the the tension between discerning the good in general and performing it in the particularity of human conditions, difficulties in interpreting natural law in the face of ethical dilemmas that neither Aristotle nor Aquinas could have envisaged. Aquinas himself reminds us of the difficulties when he says that moving beyond general principles which have a certain necessity to practical action, the more deficiency one finds. In his acknowledgement of this difficulty, we see intimations of his inductive and flexible approach to natural law. Aquinas acknowledges the limitations of our expertise in the practice of being human in complex situations. on a little bit. So I know that's very familiar territory for you, those three ideas of the expertise that we draw from, which of course we don't alone we don't own, but I'm just looking at a particularly Catholic perspective on that. All of the church's great sources of expertise in humanity have a kind of hesitancy be built into them, a caveat contra hubris that prevents the con- convicted expertise becoming distorted by hubris. So, for example, the hesitancy and mystery of defining the practical implications of saying the human person is a Mago Dei. We saw that that element of mystery held up for us by the patristic text. The more modest and dialogical expertise resulting from the reassessment of our understanding of humanity at Vatican II. And the acknowledgement of deficiency by Aquinas, that the closer one gets to practical action, the more deficient our response becomes. The balance of strong conviction and acknowledgement of mystery and hesitancy requires different emphases at different times, but it is a balance that should mark the praxis of the expertise of the Church in humanity. And the last part I want to just look at is the idea of a new kind of expertise that we have now, an expertise born of sin, cowardice and failure. We face the most serious challenge since the Reformation in the impact of the still unfolding child abuse crimes and scandals. And I was very struck by reading an interview with Hans Zollner of the Centre for Child Protection at the Gregorian University, also on the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. And he spoke about the global nature of the crisis. It is alarming to discover that the sexual abuse of minors has been committed in every corner and in each country of the church. With this discovery, there is an awareness that certain factors pertaining to the organisation of the church can be part of the problem. Now, I believe theology can also be part of the solution. The dubia of the four cardinals, we won't go into that, but I think everybody knows what's going on there, refers to the grave disorientation and grave confusion caused by Francis. 
it, it leaves me speechless that they haven't spoken equally strongly about the grave disorientation and grave confusion caused by what we have faced in recent years. It's nothing compared with the gravity of confusion and hurt caused by what has been exposed. And here I'm thinking not just of the perpetrators of abuse, because that is a different issue to which I'm not really qualified to, to, to comment, but the often inhumane responses of church leaders, be that born out of fear or ignorance or protection of the church, or what is chilling referred to by a witness at an Australian parliamentary inquiry into the handling of child abuse as, and I quote, a sociopathic lack of empathy. The question for me in the light of the crisis is, how can we consciously mine our failures as a church to enrich our expertise as humanity and continue to be a credible voice in a world for the people that Paul VI so eloquently defined our expertise in relation to the dead, the disinherited, the unfortunate, those who long for justice, a dignified life, etc. And recently I've been reflecting a little bit on this idea of interruption. Carmen said I said something like this before and I can't remember, but I was, I'm, I'm always interested by what interrupts theologians' lives. It makes them think differently. And I remember as a young student reading Barth's account in his essay on evangelical theology in the 19th century, where he talks about a particular day in early August 1914 that stands out on his memory, some of you are probably familiar with, where he says that 93 German intellectuals stood and proclaimed their support for, for the war policy of Wilhelm II. And Barth says, I quote, among these intellectuals I discovered to my horror almost all of my theological teachers whom I greatly venerated. In despair over, this, over what this indicated about the signs of the times, I suddenly realised that I could not any longer follow their ethics, our dogmatics, or their understanding of the Bible and history. It's a really powerful, um, and it has often made me think as a theologian, what is it that interrupts my own, um, my own doing of theology? You, we see something similar, not as dramatic, in Bernard Herring's beautiful reflection, um, Embattled Witness, where he talks about, you know, witnessing the most absurd obedience of Christians towards the criminal Nazi regime. And it's this that was the impetus for his conviction that at the core of moral theology should, be should not be obedience but responsibility, the courage to be responsible. Uh, I think it's very interesting, the number of theologians of the 20th century, they're usually the big guys, who either lived through, fought in, or were affected by war and the impact that that had. Now, it's not the only kind of interruption. You know, um, liberation theology was interrupted by oppression and poverty. Feminist theology emerged out of the interruption of being aware of patriarchy and misogyny, likewise with theology that responds to racism. So the child sexual abuse is a kind of interruption into our self-understanding of church and the understanding of ourselves as experts in humanity. But while there has been considerable pastoral work done in response to the crisis, and I have to say an amazing work done in Ireland, um, there is little reflection on how our capacity to speak an authentic word to and about humanity is affected. So, for example, I read an essay in a newly published book, which I won't name because it's terrible to use in public forum to criticise anybody, but it was on Catholic humanism. No mention whatsoever of the crisis. You know, so it's that there is a need for an integrated theological response, biblical, ethical, systematic that responds to this grotesque interruption into our expertise in humanity. 
Many of you are familiar with the first interview that Pope Francis made where he gave us an image of the church. Anybody remember this? Testing to see are you awake still? The church as the field hospital. Do you remember that? Um, and he, he talks about that's what the, the world needs most. And he very passionate, typical Franciscan language. Heal the wounds, heal the wounds. Now this is an intriguing model of church, particularly for those who are used to the kind of niche models of Avery Dulles. The evocation of the church as a field hospital conveys not just images of healing, but a sense of extremity, danger, and a focus on healing where some of the constraints and courtesies of the normal work environment are set aside, where priorities are determined by response to crisis. This model of the church poses challenges for all of us. However, the model, like every model of the church, is about being and doing, about making visible an invisible reality. I think that that model that Francis speaks about is only uh, effective um, to the extent that we as church, or the church as institution, understands itself as both patient and physician in that field hospital. The church bears the scars because of having inflicted scars. The theology of the wounded healer, associated, I'm sure many of you read with, powerfully with Henri Naum, falls short in the current situation where it is not the fragility and contingency of a person that is at stake, but a combination of personal and structural sin. Recognising the risen and wounded Christ in the midst of this is a challenge, but it is into that chaos, hurt, betrayal and confusion that the risen wounded Christ first spoke words of peace. My favourite, not favourite, sorry, another there, the, the image of Pentecost associated with the reading of Vatican II is very much the Luke Acts, you know, multi, the life and fires and tongues. And, but there is another Pentecost in the New Testament, and that is the quiet Johannine Pentecost, which I think perhaps is worth reflecting on. The church has a new expertise, if we can be honest about that. We all know that we learn best, perhaps, from our failures. And this expertise augments rather than negates our previous expertise in humanity, and, I hope, cleans it of hubris. We need to be more modest about our claims of expertise, more consciously dialogical in the practice of that expertise, more tentative in some of our conclusions without reneging on certain core principles, more open to revisioning our positions as evidence warrants it, and humble enough to reflect on the failure of the Church to shape our expertise. We engage in the pilgrimatic project of discovering and transforming to the truth of what it is to be human Imago Dei, in a complex world as a scarred church. And if I may finish by returning to those beautiful words of Augustine from De Trinitrati. And look at this, not so much at the image of God that is each of us, but the image of God that is the church. Whether this image be so worn out as to be almost none at all, or whether it be obscured and defaced, or scarred, or bright and beautiful, certainly it always is. Our hope, our prayer, I think, should be that a badly scarred church can learn from its failures to speak with conviction, but also dialogically with mystery, humility and hesitancy of our expertise in humanity. Thank you.